Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 68. The 68th Psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm or song of David. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. This psalm has been called the battle hymn of the Huguenots. Most of us are familiar with who the Huguenots are, how they came to be, but perhaps some of you children are not as aware. You see, France at one time was largely overtaken by Antichrist. Rome had taken hold of France as much of the known world. But as the gospel went forth, and as reformations from the Lord came about, reviving men from the deadness of their heart, and a false gospel given by Rome, there was a turn in the tide. And a number of people amassing close to 800 to 900,000, came to know the Lord and became Calvinistic Protestants known as Huguenots. There's actually a T at the end, and because it's a French word, the T ends up getting left out. You might see Huguenot instead. Now, how did they come to be? Well, with Rome's tyranny being pushed back by magistrates that now tasted some of the gospel with the Protestant Reformation, and seeing that they might be free from the heel of the hegemonic grip of Rome's foot, started to push back. And godly ministers began to make appeals to magistrates on the behalf of Christians, even if they did not live in that country, to seek the good of the people of God, and to seek the glory of Lord Sabaoth. And one of these men was John Calvin. So John Calvin himself, being a native Frenchman, writes to King Francis I in the 1st of August, 1536, which pamphlet would later become Calvin's Institutes. And in that describing to King Francis how the people that our Christians, Calvinistic Christians, are not a hostile people, but will better his kingdom and will cause it to flourish. And the seed that Calvin sowed in the heart of King Francis ended up bearing fruit some 60 years later, on April 13, 1598, when King Henry IV declared and wrote, and subscribe to the Edict of Nantes, giving privilege to the Calvinistic Protestants in France to freely worship the true and living God without facing persecution. However, such things were not kept. And some generations later, on October 18th, 1685, Louis XIV, revoked the Edict of Nantes with his Edict of Fontainebleau 
and cause bloodshed to be had all throughout France, so that he gleefully said that the 800,000 Frenchmen that once were Huguenots has dwindled down to no more than 10,000. Bloodshed throughout the kingdom of France for Christ's glory. Spitting at Christ. And so, as the Huguenots would go to war, they would sing Psalm 68. And as we look at this psalm, beloved, this psalm of the august majesty of Lord Sabaoth, you will see quite clearly that it is a militaristic psalm. It is a psalm declaring to us the goings of Lord Sabaoth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the angel of the Lord that went forth before the armies of Israel. And in this psalm, that we do not have the time to look at every single detail in this psalm. And even if we were, we would not suffice it through the rest of the, day, the night to be able to fulfill all things. But with the Lord's help, we'll consider three things concerning the august majesty of Lord Sabaoth, the things that he accomplishes for our good and his glory. First, his covenant. Second, his care, and third, the culmination. Verses 1 through 6, the covenant of Lord Sabaoth. Verses 7 to 19, the care of Lord Sabaoth. And verses 20 to 35, the culmination of Lord Sabaoth. First, looking at the covenant in verses 1 through 6. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. David here begins this psalm. <coughs> this psalm that in our Psalter comes after two orphan psalms. And you've already heard one of those psalms from me in my description of them. And the fact that these two orphan psalms uh, speak to the festivals of the Lord, the three times a year that all the males, 20 years old and upward, had to come before the Lord in the place that he would choose. And I said some time ago, and perhaps you have it in the back of your head, and I'll bring it to the foreground now because it's important for this psalm to understand what's going on in this psalm, historically speaking, that all throughout these last few psalms, the Ark of the Covenant of God the symbol of his presence and glory has been in the background of these psalms. And when we come to this psalm in Psalm 68, it is right there, though it is not named. Likewise, if you're looking for Lord Sabaoth in this psalm, you will not find that name. It is in Psalm 69, but not in 68. But all throughout the psalm, you see Lord Sabaoth. All throughout the psalm, you see the ark as well. Why is that important, brothers and sisters? It is important because that is the one who is going out for us. Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Jesus Christ is not a pansy. Jesus Christ is not a soft man. And many times people will shrink back 
because of the picture that is represented of Christ here in this psalm or elsewhere saying he's too harsh, he's too rough. Can't we make him more docile? Can't we feminize him a little bit, make him softer? No, he's not an effeminate. He is a man's man. He is a man of war. And so it is that we read early on in Exodus that the Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh to call for the children of Israel to come out, and the repeated refrain of what the children of Israel called is the armies of the Lord. Armies need a captain. Armies need a leader. And what we find in the book of Exodus, which is what we're going to see soon enough this is coming from, is the Lord is leading his people. The angel goes throughout the camp of Pharaoh, slays the firstborn at midnight, and he leads forward the people in a pillar of cloud of fire, leading them to the edge of the Red Sea. We see this in Exodus. And as Pharaoh approaches, we see something interesting. The Lord of glory removes himself from the front of where Israel is and puts himself between the armies of Pharaoh and his armies to protect them, to preserve them, because he has a covenant with them. And they go across on the dry land of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's armies are crushed, never to be seen by the children of Israel again. And after they get to Sinai, and they receive the Ten Commandments, and they receive the law, and they receive the priesthood from Levi, and all these things, in Numbers 10, when the children of Israel prepare to depart on the second year of the second month, and the 20th day of the month, because if you recall, there were men that were unclean and couldn't partake of the first Passover, so the Lord grants them the privilege of the second month as a Passover. That's important, and it will come up later. That we read these words from Moses. In Numbers chapter 10. as they took their journeys. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. Now note the words here. And it came to pass when the Ark went forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let the enemies be scattered. Let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. Look again at Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let also them that hate him flee before him. David is pulling from the very words of Moses. And for this reason, historically, many believe that David is writing this psalm either during the time that the ark is being taken from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem or a little bit after that. So you have 
2 Samuel 6 as the earliest, perhaps 2 Samuel 7, which is my preference, because of the covenant given to David and some other things that appear in this psalm. David, to me, is writing this in response to all that had happened between 6 and 7 and sees with prophetic eyes what the Lord is preparing for the future in the temple in Jerusalem. But he begins by declaring the covenant that Moses before had said. Arise, O Lord. Now it's interesting. This same phrase is used in Psalm 132. In Psalm 132, and this speaks to why I think it was done after 2 Samuel 6 and more like 2 Samuel 7. In Psalm 132, we have a psalm of degrees. One of the psalms that the children of Israel would sing as they went up. They went up ascending to Jerusalem for the festivals. And it recounts for us the consternation in David's heart. I live in a house, but the ark dwells in a tent that I set up for it. And him longing to build a temple, a house for the Lord. And in this context, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest. Thou and the ark of thy strength. Their ark is explicitly mentioned. And there we see the rest being the temple of the living God. David sees with prophetic eyes what would happen with Christ, how Christ would enter up into his rest in the ascension and be seated at the right hand of the Father and holding the blood of the covenant as Lord Sabaoth, having fought against Satan, having fought against the wickedness of this world and having defeated death and being raised the third day. So David begins with the strength of this covenant of Lord Sabaoth for our good and his glory. Now Lord Sabaoth is all throughout the Old Testament. You see the angel of the Lord appearing all over, especially in the life of Elisha and Elijah. The children of Israel are told by Moses God is going to send his angel before you. Listen to him. He says it twice. And when Joshua sees a man with a sword in his hand on the coast, past the Jordan, he asks the man, are you for us or for our enemies? And what does the man say? Nay, but I am captain of the Lord's host. Lord Sabaoth standing before Joshua. And it is best that Joshua get in line, lest he be scattered like the enemies. That language there, the scattering that is done. This is what the Lord does to those that oppose him. It's what we see in the Lord's prayer. The hallowing of his name being first and foremost. Praying for the establishing of his kingdom. It being, it coming and it flourishing throughout the world. The destruction of the kingdom of Satan. Us being drawn to him and placed under subjection unto him to serve in a godly manner, and that his will would flourish in the land, on earth as it is in heaven. And you see this in the psalm, the hallowing of God's name, 
the coming of his kingdom and his will being done. His will is to scatter his enemies. As sure as the Red Sea scattered every man from their chariot and horse when the waters came crashing down upon them. Those of you that have been to some sort of um, lake and have seen uh, waves out there and uh, people going out to try and surf on the waves or your kids and they go out with a little tube um, and you see a big wave come up and just slams down on them and then what happens? The child goes one way and the tube goes another way. And that's a small wave. Imagine the desolation that would have been had that day when the children of Israel stood on the other side of the Red Sea and saw the two towering wave walls fall down on the whole host of Pharaoh's army. Chariots shattered to smithereens. Pieces of people flying everywhere. It would have been utter destruction. And David draws this covenant and says, let your enemies be scattered. Them that hate you, let them flee before you. He gives a couple of illustrations. He likens it to smoke that is driven away. Wax that melts in the fire. You children remember the last class that we had for the Bible survey was in Ecclesiastes. What does Solomon say life is like? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And I told you the word hevel. And that's like a mist. It's like a vapor. Here the same way. It's been cold recently. We've had some humidity. So you could go out there and, and you see the air come out of your lungs. And then what happens? Within a few seconds, it dissipates. It just spreads away. That's what God is saying here. David is calling by covenant Lord Sabaoth to drive his enemies away like smoke. It's here and then it's gone. And likewise, wax. Wax that seems from the outside. You can make sculptures from wax. You can make things out of wax that look big. But with enough heat, even the light of the sun, what happens to it? Melts away. And so it is, the enemies of the Lord, the enemies that stand against Christ and his crown rights, the enemies that stand against the church may look big and ferocious, may have a gaslighting subterfuge of smoke where you can't see past them. God is able to come and dissipate them and blow them away. The Lord of Goy, the Lord Sabaoth, comes with the heat of the light of his countenance and melts them to the ground into the cracks of the floor, never to be seen again. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the Lord of glory that we have. He is our King. He is our Lord Sabaoth. And when we are afflicted for his namesake, we ought to run to the Psalms, especially this Psalm, and claim his covenant that he has for us. Our response should be gladness and joy. Let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing unto the Lord his praises. Something interesting in this psalm. I noted to you that Lord Sabaoth is not mentioned at all in this psalm. However, there are a number of interesting names of the Lord that are in here. You have Jehovah. You have Adonai. You have Elohim. And you have the name Yah, the shorthand for Jehovah. Or Jehovah. Why is that interesting? Because 
That name only appears 45 in 45 verses of the Bible. Two times in Exodus, three times in Isaiah, 40 times in the Psalms. 40 out of 45 verses in the Psalms. And this is the first time it occurs in the Psalter. And it happens twice. In this verse and again at the end, where you see the word God, it's actually the word Yah. Here's the name of the Lord. Yah. Yah. Now, where do we see that in Exodus? It's in, it's in association with the Lord saying, my name is Jealous. My name is Yah. It is for my glory, for my rights that I fight, for my covenant. It is for his glory, his jealousy that Lord Sabaoth rouses himself and rises to the task before him because of the covenant that he has made with his people, not because we're so great. Read in Ezekiel 36, what the Lord would do for his people, not because they had repented in exile, because he notes that even in exile, you profane my name before the heathen. Now, there was a large portion that did repent and came back. But he says, it's for my namesake, for my jealousy, that I'm going to do this thing. So what is it that the Lord does? What does the makeup of the covenant of the Lord Sabaoth look like? Well, David addresses that in the next few verses. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God set at the solitary in families. He bringeth out those that are bound with chains, and the rebellious dwell in a dry land. You see this often in the psalm, all throughout. There's a contrast between the godly and the ungodly. What God does for the godly, what God does for the ungodly. And here's one of the beauties of the covenant of Christ, Lord Sabaoth, and his kingdom, is to take the poor and destitute and to raise them up. This is not the norm in most kingdoms. In the majority of the kingdoms, kings do not, of their good free will, of the love that they have for their people, take the afflicted, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and say, I'm going to raise you up and cause you to eat at my table, like David did with Mephibosheth. No, the norm is, what political favor can I get from using these people? How can I use them to my advantage? And so... In many large cities, you see a lot of poor and afflicted people gathering around because the magistrates will dole out the things as long as you vote for them. And that's wickedness. But what does Christ do? From his bounty, not from taxing the people and then giving it back and redistributing wealth, but from his own bounty, he comes and says, I'm going to be a father to the fatherless. This is the heartbeat of the Lord of glory. Consider the first of those adopted by Christ, our father Adam, who had spurned the glory of God, spat at the covenant, and yet Adam is adopted into the kingdom of Christ and becomes a son of God again. He takes the fatherless and he brings them in. This is the character of his covenant, of his kingdom. 
I've said this before and it's worth noting that unlike other kingdoms, the foundation of the kingdom of Christ is two things, and we see it all throughout the Psalter. We see it especially in Psalm 100, truth and mercy. Many people can have truth without mercy. Some have mercy so-called without truth. But to have both of them and to balance them perfectly is what Christ has done. And he does so in his kingdom, which is why he can take the fatherless and take them to himself and care for them. The fatherless, the orphans, the widows have a close place in the heart of the Lord Zabaoth. He defends them when no one is there to defend them. And so it is even in the law, Exodus 22, 22, you are commanded not to take advantage of the poor and the widows and the orphans. Because the Lord will rise up against you. He will take them and help them. And he will knock you down to that same thing. Perhaps one of the most jarring psalms for us is that psalm that speaks of Judas and how we're told in the psalm that his wife will become a widow and his children orphans and they will be perpetually begging bread. The Lord leaves his enemies desolate. He does the reverse of what his enemies are seeking to do to them. And why? It is because of his covenant, the jealousy that Lord Sabaoth has to seek out his own glory, to seek out our good. Again, where do you see this in the world? I'll tell you where you should see this in the world, and that is among Christian families. Anyone that names themselves a Christian ought to be like this. Seeking out to care for the poor in a godly way. Seeking out to care for orphans in a godly way. Seeking out to care for widows in a godly way. Again, not for some political points. Not to curry favor from other people. Not to do publicly their works so that they receive publicly praise. But to do it in secret so that the Lord will show them openly on the last day the good works that they did. And why? It is because... You as a person have been adopted by Christ. If you know him as your personal savior, if you have taken hold of Lord Sabaoth and bowed the knee to him and kissed his feet and said, I will submit to your rule and reign. You alone is the one I find salvation in. I cannot save myself. It is only by your blood that you shed for those that are yours. And so it is that those of us that were orphans in the kingdom of Satan, Christ has picked up to made adopted brothers. And that's beautiful. Have you ever considered that? Perhaps that's a new concept to you. You were an orphan spiritually. You were an orphan. Most of us have not been orphans. We might have to wait until our parents pass away to consider ourselves as orphans late in life. But very few of us have had to deal with orphan-like circumstances early on in life. We're five years old or ten years old where it would drastically affect how we grew up to live on the streets begging for food like you read in Oliver Twist. But spiritually speaking, we all were orphans. 
and Christ by his Holy Spirit, by command of God the Father, adopted us as his son and said, here's your older brother. This is your family now. And if the Lord did that for us spiritually, should we not do that for those that are of flesh and blood descended from Adam as we are? To show a reflection of what is done in spirit to them temporally, that it might be an opportunity to share the gospel with them. This is the covenant that David begins with, the covenant that he notes, hastening on, verses 7 to 19. The care of Lord Sabaoth for our good and his glory. What is the care that we have seen? He, David has spoken generally. Now he's going to deal in particulars. And the particulars are quite interesting. Giving you the overview of what's happening here in 7 to 19. David is going to take us through covenant history. Redemptive history with Israel. From Mount Sinai to where he is now. Verses 7 to 10 are the wilderness wanderings. Verses 11 to 14 covers that second generation going into Jordan with Joshua and the period of the judges. Verses 15 to 19 is the Lord choosing Zion to rest the ark. 7 to 10, the care of the Lord in his providence with his people for his glory and our good. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was removed at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein, Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. Here's poor Israel. And David depicts how Lord Sabaoth led them through the wilderness. Remember, before they're departing, Moses appeals to Jethro and says, Lead us through the wilderness. You know this area better than anybody. And at first he pushes back. But who do we see leading the children of Israel? Lord Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth leads them. Elsewhere, we see that Lord Sabaoth is there as a rock. That rock is Christ, giving to them water. Notice what he says. He gives to them goodness for the poor. Plentiful rain. What is that? That's the manna coming down. Every day receiving their portion a double portion on the second to the last day of the week so that they might prepare for the Sabbath day and not work and rest. Christ always before them. Christ behind them as Lord Sabaoth when he protected them from Pharaoh. Christ all around them as Lord Sabaoth with the cloud, the pillar at the front, the cloud overhead like a hen, overshadowing them, keeping them from the beating of the heat of the sun, causing their shoes not to wear out, their garments not to get holes or be moth-eaten, caring for them for those 40 years. 
that he spurned, they spurned his covenant. And yet the Lord took care of them. Yet the Lord cared for them. You know, as parents, we often get perturbed and tired of the care that we have for our children. And there are times and sins that we do not care for them as we ought. But the Lord Sabaoth is not so. He is always caring for his people. I mentioned the front, the back, overhead. You realize that underneath he was caring for them as well. So what, where, where do you get that idea from? They're walking through the wilderness, and he's caring for them. He's keeping them free from wild animals. He's keeping the ground from underneath from falling open, as what, was, what happened with Datham and Abiram and Korah in the rebellion. He shows them a new thing. He shows how much he's caring for them, that if he was to step back and just let go, the, the deistic idea that God just winds up the earth, lets it go, and then... In him we live and move and have our being. Christ holds the universe together. And if for a second he was like, enough, we would all fall like the three rebellious. And yet he upheld them. He upheld them in the midst of their rebellion. He spares them. The care that he has for them in the wilderness. Look at the care with the judges and Joshua. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace. And she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lion among the pots, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it was white as snow in Salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan and high hill as the hills of Bashan. The Lord comes and he brings the children of Israel from the wilderness and he causes them now to enter into the promised land. Kings are running away. They're fleeing. They're being destroyed at him. He cares for his people so that anybody that comes to touch his anointed is destroyed. And David's choice of these two places is interesting. Salmon, which to your children, as you read it, might look like salmon. That's actually more like salmon. It's a different word. It's the hill that you know better as Ebal. It's the same place. Salmon is the place where Abimelech in Judges decides to make himself the first counterfeit king opposing Christ and Lord Sabaoth. Bashan, which word means fruitful, was that fruitful hill on the east side of the Jordan that Manasseh took, where Og and Zion came out against the children of Israel. The first kings that they would see before they entered the promised land, the first upstart that claimed the kingship for himself. And what does David say? Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. David here lifts from Judges 
chapter 5, the words of Deborah. Quick to the prey, quick to the slaughter. A woman or two for every man. Speaks of the women at home like jail, who not only divided the head of Sisera, but also the spoil. The care that the Lord has for his people. This group of slaves coming out 40 years later, toppling nation after nation after nation. How is that possible? Except for the Lord Sabaoth caring for his people. And you look at the church. The church should have been dwindled to nothing a hundred times over. And yet it is by the upholding of Lord Sabaoth, our Lord Jesus Christ, that she remains. Think of the killing times with the covenanters. How often they escaped their captors. Why? Think of Orandis Rosenblatt taking her kids under night, crossing territories. How? Why? The care of Lord Sabaoth. As he goes and conquers and expands his kingdom for his glory and our good. And as he did so with the children of Israel, the Old Testament church, he does so with us, the continuing church. The choosing of Zion, what care he had in that, it's foreshadowed in the sacrifice of Isaac. When the Lord told Abraham to take Isaac his son, his only son, that he loved, to a place that was a three days journey and sacrifice him there. And though the lamb was not yet given to them, the lamb would come another day in Jesus Christ. And so it is that the Lord has care in choosing this place. Notice what it says. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye hills? Why this is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000 even. Even thousands of angels. The Lord God is among them as in Zion, his holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, I have received gifts from men, yea, for the rebellious also. The Lord God may dwell among them. Blessed is the Lord God, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. Did you notice verse 7 ends with Selah? And verse 19, the last of this section, ends with Selah? Pause and meditate concerning the care that the Lord has for his people. The care that he had in choosing Zion. Is Zion one of the highest hills, mountains in Israel? No. There were higher hills. Mount Ebal was a higher hill. And yet he chose Zion to place his name. Notice what the Lord says in response. 
or David through the Lord. Why leap ye ye hills? That word there for leap is actually uh, not what you think. It's not like a calf skipping or leaping. That's a different word. Instead, it's a word that means to watch enviously. Have you ever seen maybe one of your siblings, maybe a friend, get something that you wanted and you just cross your arms? Put a skull on your face and that should be mine. I should have that. That's what these hills are doing. And David or the Lord is saying, why are you looking endlessly at that? That's not yours by right. God chose it for them. It's like Rachel looking at Leah with her nose out of joint because God is blessing the wife of the covenant of Jacob with children and she's not getting any. Save Benjamin and Joseph. Why is your nose out of joint, ye hills? I put my name there. What do you have to offer that Zion has? Nothing. And that's why I chose Zion. It has nothing to offer either. It's because I'm putting my name there that it's important. You see, Zion's not important because it's the highest, the most fruitful plain, the most beautiful to look at. None of that. Zion's important because Christ's name is there. Because Lord Sabaoth with the ark dwells there. David sees that. But David sees that it's not just about earthly Jerusalem, but about heavenly Jerusalem. What we read in Galatians, how the Jerusalem of earth is Hagar, allegorically speaking. Like Sinai, she's under bondage. But the Jerusalem above, that's the mother of us all, is free. And David has his eyes affixed upward to heavenly Jerusalem, seeing that God choosing this place is like a type of that, the Jerusalem that he is longing for one day. Why? Because from that heavenly Jerusalem comes the chariots of Lord Sabaoth to take out the people that are against it. Now, some commentators note that it's not just that David is writing this psalm not during the time of Obed-Edom, but that some battle took place to bring the psalm about. I wonder, we don't know, but I do wonder what the spiritual warfare was like concerning the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem. I highly doubt it that there was no hostility from Satan's kingdom for God receiving glory. And so I wonder, was there a battle with the Philistines that we don't know about? Was there a battle with some of the Canaanites that we don't know about? Trying to perturb the Lord receiving his ark back? I don't know. Some think that, and that's what David's referencing here. Whether or not that's the case, we don't know. We can't make a definitive statement about that. But we can say that the Lord out of Zion, out of his high and holy hill, sends forth his army. And do you remember, Christian, did you remember this morning to put on the whole armor of God? Did you remember to put on each part with a prayer, a preparation of the gospel of peace? Did you remember to put on each part? Or are you running around in a girdle? You're warriors. You're part of Christ's army. But see, Christ gives aid 
The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. Now, this is interesting. The Lord commanded Israel not to multiply chariots. The king was not to multiply chariots. It was very difficult where Israel was at to have chariots. The Philistines, the Egyptians had a flatter plain. It was easier for them to have chariots. And here's the Lord riding in the sky with his 20,000 chariots. Nothing in the way. The Lord goes forth to take captivity captive. And here we have the verse in verse 18 that is used by Paul in Ephesians 4 concerning the riches that Christ has given to the church, having ascended upward. (coughs) David, closing the section, says this, Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Children, what is it that you're to pray for? Give us this day our daily bread. Here, David in the psalm says, Blessed be the Lord for daily loading us with benefits. It's the idea of being piled on more and more and more. The Lord loading upon us many benefits. And how often do we go through our day not meditating upon the goodness of what the Lord has given to us in salvation? It's what he says, the God of our salvation. David is not merely speaking about physical deliverance, though that is part of it. He's talking about spiritual deliverance. And how often it is the case that we take for granted the many blessings that God loadeth upon us. Much like the children of Israel in the wilderness. Free food, free water, free clothes that don't wear out. And what do they do? Grumble, complain, grumble, complain, grumble, complain all the way through for 40 years. Daily loading the children of Israel. Daily loading the church with benefits. The same can be said for the preaching of the word. How often that would happen. Daily loading with that benefit. We see that with the reformations. There was church being meeting every day of the week. Three times a day in Geneva. The preaching of the word. Daily being loaded with benefits. You think to what caused the ark to go away in the first place was the wickedness of Eli and his sons. So that they use it as a good luck charm. Bring out the ark, forgetting about how they were daily loaded with the benefits of God. And the Philistines capture it. And the wife of one of Eli's sons calls the child Ichabod. The glory has departed. On the Hebrew, it literally says, the glory has been made naked, been uncovered. It's the same word used concerning Noah and his tent. This is what blasphemy of God looks like, to put him to open shame before the all-seeing world. So if the ark going out was that, The ark coming back was glory. Glory upon glory. The Lord bringing it back 
and loading with benefits. You see, it took time. It took time for the church to regain back what was eaten. What we see in Joel, how the Lord says that I will recover what the locust, in 2.35 of Joel, I will recover what the locust had eaten. I will restore it. There was a lot of time with the judges, the last judge of Eli, and then Samuel as the final one. A lot of time of restoration needed to be had to the point of Samuel coming and the word of God being rare. Samuel being the beginning, that beginning light of the Reformation. And David being one of the big ones, the main one, to bring the Reformation of the church with her worship too. You see this ebb and flow in the church. Where when the church forgets about the daily bloating of the benefits of God, she starts to spiral downward. She becomes full of herself. This is the warning that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. And she falls. And she goes into a time of declension. And then the Lord, as we saw in Ezekiel 36, and the Lord's good timing and providence, that God will bring it back, not for our goodness that we're doing, which is none, but for his own namesake, because he's jealous for it. And it's in that context that David is writing this psalm. The glory has come back. Ichabod becomes Hani Kabad. Behold the glory instead of where's the glory. And the Lord loads on us the glory of his benefits. Lastly, the culmination of Lord Sabaoth for our good and his glory. Culmination of what he is doing. Verses 20 to 35. He that is our God is of our salvation, and unto God belongeth the issues from death. But God shall wound the head of all his enemies, and the hairy scalp of such as goeth on still his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring again from the depths of the sea, that my foot may be dipped in the blood of mine enemies, and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. Here the Lord in the culmination speaks of the expansion of his church, the further expansion of it. Things that he has done before, he's going to do again. And here we see David with a sight to what Christ is going to do. Christ comes and what does he do? Christ conquers death. We see that in verse 20. The issues of death, that word issues has to do with the extremities, the border, the, the, the furthest that you can go outward. When Christ says all power is given unto him, that he will be with us to the end of the age, everything that he has procured is for our good and his glory. He has a resurrected body, and we shall also have it. Why? Because Christ has procured it for his, for his glory and our good. All the things that he has gotten. He has conquered sin, the devil, death, so that we might mortify sin in our flesh. 
so that we may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil and say to him, the Lord rebuke you. And he has conquered death so that when you close your eyes for the last time in this temporal earth, you will open them in glory with a glorified body until the day that the Lord fetches your body from the grave on the last day. Is that not beautiful, beloved? But see, this is what David is seeing in the culmination of the work of Lord Sabaoth. He is going forth to conquer and to conquer. He must reign until all things be placed under his feet. And the last enemy to defeat it is death. He speaks of the conquering of Satan. God shall wound the head of his enemies. No doubt a reference to Genesis 3. The crushing of the head of the serpent. Stepping upon the adder as we see in the psalm elsewhere that Christ alludes to at the ending of Mark. The things that he has procured for us. The crushing of the enemy's head. In North America, if you've read a history textbook from the time of the uh, colonies, the Mayflower, as we're approaching the, the yearly um, observance of Thanksgiving civilly. You probably heard some of the Native Americans, and one of the practices they would have would be to scalp people, to take a tomahawk and shave off the top of the head from the skull and taking the skin and the hair with it. Look at what it says here in the psalm. He's going to wound the heads of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such an one that goeth on still in his trespasses. Several commentaries I read said that this referred to scalping. So it must have been a practice that the Israelites knew. You don't recover from scalping, in case you're wondering. And people often took scalps as trophies. The same way that you see thumbs and toes being taken of the kings. Or heads, scalps were done the same way. The Lord takes it, the expansion of his kingdom, enemies falling after enemies falling, and he does sort of say, what I did in Bashan, what I did in the Red Sea, I'm going to do again. What happened in Bashan? You had the two kings that tried to stop Israel, and he destroyed them from Amorites. What did he do in the sea? Pharaoh and his army, utterly destroyed. For what purpose? That thy feet may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies. Again, this is a militaristic psalm. Do not think that you can read this psalm and sing this psalm without feeling a little squeamish. Those who have seen war know the devastating realities of it. We have a generation that really has not seen war. It seems like every other generation gets a huge war, and we've not seen that. We've seen skirmishes. And so we've been a little um, anesthetized to war and what it actually looks like. And so people go out and uh, seek out outlets that look similar to that because they have a lust for it, which is wrong. But here, the, the Lord dips his foot in the blood of his enemies. He's walking through the battlefield having won. And it's puddle after puddle of blood. Shush, shush, shush. The hem of his garments 
being soaked up with blood. We read in Revelation of the same thing. The Lord dipping his garment in blood, not just of the enemies, but of his own blood in Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Him that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. There's Lord Sabaoth. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that with it he should smite the nations. He should rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of his fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What happens when you step on a bunch of grapes that are red? It stains your feet. It stains your clothes. We see being pulled from this psalm, John noting Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of glory, the one Jesus Christ, whose name he alone knows, stepping in the blood of his enemies with his host with him. An expansion of his kingdom by the destruction of his enemies, but not just destroying them so that they are no more, throwing them out, destroying them that way, but also subduing his enemies to himself. Not all receive the guillotine. Some of them are made to be cupbearers or doorkeepers or ministers or elders. The singers went before the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the damsels playing with the timbrels. Bless ye God in the congregation, even the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is a little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah and their council, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. We see the strengthening of Christ's church in the culmination of Lord Sabaoth. Again, if Christ was to destroy everything wicked, we'd be destroyed. Not a one of us would remain in his presence. And yet, by his mercy, he takes us and brings us into his family, into his kingdom, into his army. And David notes this. He brings out some of the names of the tribes here. There's a little Benjamin. There's the princes of Judah. There's Zebulun. There's Naphtali. Similar to what we sang in Psalm 87, that this one will say, I was born there. Christ strengthens his church. We read in Revelation 3, the second verse, the warning to the church of Sardis that things were about to die and what was the response of Christ? Therefore, strengthen it. And he notes that he is the one in whom strength is found. You read concerning David's mighty men. How do they have the strength to do what they did? It was the Lord of glory upholding them. 
when Jonathan is with his armor bearer and has the Philistines taunting them, and he says to Jonathan, you see them, we're going to take them out if they trash talk us. If they say something else, we're not going up. That'll be the sign from the Lord. How is it that they were able to do it? Because of the strength and the glory of God with them. Lord Sabaoth was with him. How is it that David took down Goliath? Not just the skill of the hours of his training from other Benjaminites, how to use a slingshot. That's part of it. God uses means. But it is because the Lord Sabaoth was with him. Saul had long forsaken Lord Sabaoth and his leading. What does the Lord say? Strengthen these things. Strengthen them. You may be little. Strengthen it. We see it in Hebrews 12. The drooping hands, the weak and feeble needs, strengthen them. From Lord Sabaoth, who daily loaded us with benefits. Go, go to his cabinetry. Go to where he has the rations, the munitions, all that's necessary. And take freely of them, but take them by faith. Put the balm of Gilead upon your wounds and the salve of the gospel upon your soul and be strengthened and not weak. The pollution of sin upon your flesh, wash with the water of the word. Strengthen. We see the church in culmination being strengthened by the Lord. And so we see this waxing and waning that happens throughout time and throughout the world. So that what do we have? Before the continuing church of the New Testament, the large part of the church apostatizing and going away was 11. And then it was 100-something. And then it was 3,000. And now you look. Look throughout the globe. It's huge. Now, even if we take into account the, the liberal side that's false and the moderates, there's still a much larger number of strong churches than there was at the day of Pentecost. And you have this ebb and flow. You have dark ages and you have periods of light. And we tend to see greater light happen after greater darkness. This is the dealing of the Lord. So that on the last day, when he comes, it will be full brightness. See the culmination of his kingdom in total for his glory and our good. What does he say? He says, because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of the bulls and the calves of the people. So let everyone submit himself with pieces of silver. Scatter thou with the people that delight in war. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hand unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord Selah. To him that rideth upon the heavens, which were of old, lo, he doth send out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel. His strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. 
The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. You see, he moves outward. It's not just the church in the Old Testament, Israel receiving it. But now, parts that you wouldn't expect, Ethiopia, Egypt. And if you think back to what was said before about the poor, the orphan, the widow, you see that in the Old Testament with Rahab being taken in, Ruth the Moabitess being taken in. You see that in the New Testament, the Ethiopian eunuch being taken in, who before could not be circumcised, could not have a place in Israel, now receives the name. And that's what we see in Psalm 87. This one was born there, we'll say. They from Egypt will come. All of us from the isles come to the Lord. We are part of that great culmination of the work and expanse of the kingdom till the whole of the earth is under Christ's rule and reign. And previous psalms, and by previous I mean immediately previously, 67 even, it spoke of that post-millennial hope of the entirety of the world. What we read by Paul, that Israel being broken off was for the coming in of the Gentiles. And if that was good riches to us, how much more will their grafting in be again? To see on the last day the fullness of all things. All things placed under Christ's feet, Lord Sabaoth. A culmination of the church militant. No longer having to fight anymore. Seeing swords turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Because they will learn war no more. You see, that's one of the things that are noted here. Those that love war will be cast out. It's not saying that war is not necessary now. It's looking forward to that day when Christ reigns supremely. And by supremely, I don't mean that he's not in control of all things, that he's not sovereign over all things, but rather when every single last thing that is decreed in the Lord's providence is finished. And we see Maranatha. We see amen and amen. The Lord comes riding in the clouds to collect his bride. The culmination of all things. Psalm 68, the psalm of the august majesty of Lord Sabaoth. I began by telling you that this was a battle hymn of the Huguenots. I want to read a brief paragraph in closing concerning the Huguenots and what this psalm meant to them. An old commissard, commissard was the southern east part of France. And this is the people that come from there. As the hunted Protestants of the Cavains were called, says concerning Psalm 68 and the persecution that they felt, we flew when we heard the sound of the psalms. We flew as if with wings. We felt within us an animating ardor a transporting desire. The feeling cannot be expressed in words. It is a thing that must have been felt to be known. However weary we might be, we thought no more of our fatigue and grew light as soon as the Psalms reached our ear. Beloved, I pray that that is true of you as you look at Psalm 68, as you sing it. That when you are weary, when you are oppressed, when you see affliction, 
you can open up to Psalm 68 and in the Spirit say, Let God arise! Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. Amen. Let's stand and look to the Lord in prayer. Our great Heavenly Father, Lord Sabaoth and Holy Spirit, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We thank you for the time that you have granted to us to look at Psalm 68, to consider it and to ponder the greatness of the august majesty of Lord Sabaoth. And even as Christ comes before us and aids us in our walk to glory, help us to take hold of these truths that while we are the church militant here on earth, we might fight as part of the armies of Christ for his glory, his jealous glory and our good. For we have a gracious and merciful leader before us, one whose kingdom is built on truth and mercy, one who is all-wise and all-knowing. We bless you and praise your holy name for the benefits that you do load upon us daily, especially those of your word. We pray this in your son's beloved name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our elder